Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. So grab your copy of God's Word and go with me to Romans 8, where we're going to be. We read the passage just a moment ago with the young folks in here. I wanted them to hear that. And it's a man, what a great passage of Scripture. What a great passage of Scripture tonight to think on. Earlier this year, the Minersville Police Department in Pennsylvania, they received um, a letter along, inside this letter, uh, inside this envelope was a parking ticket and a $5 bill to pay the fine. Now, the sender of the letter uh, had, had written his return address as this. Feeling guilty, wayward road, any town, California. That's what his return address was. And that was sort of strange. But what was absolutely amazing was that the ticket, when they opened it up, had been issued in 1974. If you can imagine, right? Police Chief um, Michael Combs told the local news that the note accompanying the $5 said, Dear PD, I've been carrying this ticket around for 40 plus years, always intending to pay. Forgive me if I don't give you my info with respect, Dave. And so this fine that had been given, this parking ticket that had been given in 1974 in eastern Pennsylvania was only $2. Um, But the guy threw in an extra $3, I guess, for inflation. Um, Isn't it just amazing sometimes that you just can't shake a guilty conscience I mean, for 40 years for 44 years this guy carried this around with him and just imagine how many times he thumbed through his wallet and 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 saw that ticket and was reminded again i am guilty of that parking fine i, I owe this debt this fine to the police department finally the burden it was just too unbearable for him so if a two dollar parking ticket can chain a man up for 44 years. How about something that's way more serious? What about something that is grievous? Now, don't get me wrong. We should not park illegally, okay? But when we think about grievous sin, if a parking ticket can chain a man up, what about more serious, more grievous sin? As you well know from your own experience, guilt can be emotionally and physically crushing. Just think about, we adults, we're better at masking it, but think about your child, right? When that guilt hits them, when they've been caught and they know they're caught, and you see their whole body, you know, just they have that visceral reaction. And they're so sad, and and their whole body expresses you know, the, 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 the guilt and the, the sadness. It can be emotionally and physically crushing. Psalm 38. Go with me to Psalm 38. Hold your finger in Romans 8, but go with me to Psalm 38. Psalm 38, the entire psalm gives us insight into how crushing guilt can be tonight as we continue in our series, Chain Breaker. Tonight, talking about the breaking the chains of guilt. We're going to read... Psalm 38 tonight here to kind of just get going. Psalm 38 says this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, 
nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're they're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filling with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest of kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It's you, O Lord, my God, who I will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I'm ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They're mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. My goodness, what a psalm. How heavy, when you read that, is guilt. I mean, in that psalm, we, we heard internal pain, spiritual pressure, physical illness, heaviness, sadness, weakness, apathy, agitation, heart palpitations, sad eyes, feeling alone, sorrow, and anxiety, all from feeling guilty. Guilt, as we all well know, will lock you up and throw away the key. I wonder tonight... If anybody here is chained by guilt, guilt is plaguing your mind and you just can't shake it. Well, tonight I pray that we'll be able to work toward dealing with your guilt and setting your soul free. That's what tonight's about, right? Breaking the chains of guilt. So here's tonight's task. How should I handle my guilt? How should I Handle my guilt. Romans 8, 1 through 4 is a great passage for us to to, to contemplate, to to, to meditate on tonight as we think about how to handle our guilt. Let me read it again. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So how should I handle my guilt? Let's pray together and we'll get into five things. Father, help us tonight. Um, maybe, Maybe none of us came in tonight burdened and heavy. Because of guilt in our life, Father. 
But if there is someone, I pray that we'd be helped. And then for those of us that aren't God, I pray that we'd be equipped to handle it the next time it comes because guilt will come. Uh, Even if we don't do anything that really causes guilt, Satan will bring up old junk and throw it at us and sling it at us like arrows to try to kill our joy. So, Father, work with us tonight. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. So how should I handle my guilt? Let's look at five steps tonight. How should I handle my guilt? How should you handle your guilt? The first thing is you got to do this. You've got to understand the difference between objective guilt and subjective guilt. Romans 8.1 here talks about condemnation, all right? Condemnation, which is synonymous with guilt. It's real. Guilt is a real thing, but there are two different aspects of it that are important for you and me to consider tonight, okay? The first aspect is what I would call objective guilt, okay? Objective guilt. This is a judicial aspect here, okay? According to the law, whether it be God's or man's, did you do something wrong, right? It's a fact. You either broke the law or you didn't. Either a law was broken or it was not. If it was broken, then there is objective guilt. But there's a second aspect that we can't ignore. The second aspect of guilt is what I call subjective guilt, okay? Subjective guilt is an emotional aspect, okay? Regardless of whether or not a law has been broken, I feel guilty. That, 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 that was Psalm 38, right? I feel guilty. I'm emotionally burdened by my guilt. Now, objective guilt and subjective guilt should always go together. But they often don't. They often don't go together. For instance, a person may be objectively guilty, but feel no subjective guilt for their crime, for their sin. They should feel guilt, but they don't. For instance, let's say that a terrorist detonates a bomb that kills several in a train station. And this has happened, right? And usually what happens is that either they or their cohorts come out and they are pumped up, right? We killed people. We did what we went out to do, right? They're happy. There's no guilt whatsoever. In fact, they're proud of what they did. This is what the Bible calls a seared conscience, right? They should feel guilty, but they don't. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And that can happen to people, right? They just get to the point where they've sinned so much that it doesn't bother them anymore. They are excited to sin. They love to sin. The person doesn't feel any guilt, but they should. But the opposite happens as well, doesn't it? Right? The opposite happens as well, which is is the second instance of when objective guilt and subjective truth, or subjective guilt, objective guilt and subjective, uh, subjective guilt aren't together. Sometimes a person feels guilty, and they shouldn't. Sometimes a person feels guilty, and they shouldn't. Like the person who on a whim got a tattoo and now feels guilty for it. There's actually no guilt there, right? There's no guilt there. 
Or or like the mom who feels guilty for her kids attending public school. Uh, There's no actual guilt there. Or like the man who wears shorts and feels guilty because he he was raised to believe that it's wrong for men to wear anything but pants. And he's got on those shorts and he just feels guilty walking around, right? He's not actually guilty of anything. This is what the Bible calls a weak conscience, okay? A weak conscience. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 through 11 says this, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you to have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, and the brother, of, uh, the brother for whom Christ died. And so there's this idea of that weak conscience here. They, they feel guilty when they should not feel guilty. There's, no, there's nothing to be uh, guilty of. So objective guilt and subjective guilt should go hand in hand. You should only feel guilty when you are really guilty. And so we want to avoid situations where one is there and the other isn't. We shouldn't have one without the other. Second, to handle your guilt, you should embrace your objective guilt to bring on your subjective guilt. Embrace your objective guilt to bring on your subjective guilt. There are a lot of folks today who stand guilty before God and and they don't realize it. Or they've learned to not dwell on it. Or they think that their guilt's been balanced out or nullified by their good deeds. Okay? But you will never handle your guilt until you embrace your guilt. 1 John verse, uh, chapter 1, 5 through 8. 1 John 1, 5 through 8 says, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. For if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, you can never be forgiven and I can never be forgiven unless we come to grips with our need for forgiveness. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So we've got to become aware of our sins. We've got to embrace our sins. How does that happen? How do we become aware of our sins, church? What shows us our sin? The what? The Word of God does. Specifically, the law of God where God has written out what we should do, right? What we should do and and, and what we should not do. Romans 7, 7, listen to this. This is so good. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Let me say it again. Yet if it had not been... For the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, 
you shall not covet. So the Ten Commandments, for instance, they're there, they're there to show us our sin. That's why God gave them to us. They're, they're not a ladder to climb to heaven. They are a measuring stick to show us how far we've fallen short. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And I say, I failed. You shall not lie. I failed again, right? You shall honor your father and mother. Oh, my goodness, right? I just keep falling shorter and shorter. You shall not murder, okay, which includes hatred in your heart for somebody. Oh, I felt that one too, right? We could go on and on. So the first step to embracing our objective guilt is to become aware of our sin. But the second step is to confess your sin. The word confess literally means to say the same thing. So you need to say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. You need to say that your sin is sinful. That You need to say that you are guilty, not blame-shifting. Like that. That's what I like to do. Somebody else's fault, right? It's not really my fault. I can't be blamed for this, but we instead own our sin. We own our guilt. Both of these are necessary steps in embracing our objective guilt. But this is so key. Our objective guilt should then give way, should lead to, should bring on our subjective guilt. There should be godly sorrow over our sin. You ever met somebody who thought it was cool they were going to go to hell? I have. I mean, they, they, they couldn't wait, man. They thought it was going to be great. They were proud of their sin and, and, and get to hang out with the devil and, and all those things. And you think, what is wrong with those people? And so that's an instance where they understood they were guilty, but there was no sorrow for it, right? There should be godly sorrow over our sins. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10 says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, this is Paul writing, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for, see that letter, uh, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me, that, that last part again, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. This is what Psalm 38 was all about. Embracing your objective guilt so that it brings on the subjective guilt. Which brings us to the third step here. The third step to handle your guilt, and here it is, is to repent and trust in Christ to remove your objective guilt. Repent and trust in Christ to remove your objective guilt with God. Again, notice 2 Corinthians 7.10. We just read it. 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. In other words, godly grief over sin, a.k.a. guilt should lead us to repent and trust Christ, right? We should see our great sinfulness, and then we should turn and see our great Savior and run from our sin to Jesus. And when we do that, let's go back to Romans 8.1. 
We've come full circle now. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's gone, right? It, it, your objective guilt before God is gone. It's washed away. God did what the law could never do. By sending, it says here in Romans 8, 8 verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Sin got condemned and we didn't, right? It's washed away. Our objective guilt before God is gone. It's washed away. Like it said in Isaiah 118. Isaiah 118, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The blood of Jesus, y'all, washes away our sins. Maybe a better way of saying it is that the blood of Jesus pays for our sins. Jesus stood guilty in your place. The Bible says, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. See, that's why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He paid for our sins. That's true of every person who believes on him. There is nothing left for us to pay. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Our objective guilt is gone. And in fact, not only is our objective guilt gone, but we're made objectively righteous. Like I said a moment ago with the kids in here, we're not just made innocent. We are made righteous. Righteous. We are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And where the righteousness of Jesus Christ fills up, there is no room for guilt. It doesn't have a place in the life of a child of God who is saved by Jesus Christ. That's step three. Here's the fourth step tonight. To handle your guilt, you should work to reconcile with those hurt by your objective guilt. Now listen, we don't just sin. When we, when we sin, we don't just sin against God, we sin against man, Right? We sin against women. We, we, we sin against people. So we don't just need to do business with God. That vertical relationship, that has to be restored. But there also has to be restoration horizontally, right, in those relationships. I'm not going to spend a long time here. This would be a whole other message, and we've talked about this quite a bit in the past. But we've got to work to reconcile with those who are hurt by your objective guilt. Let's just throw it out here tonight. Let's talk about this. What do you think are some key things to do. If you're going to reconcile with those who were hurt by your sin, what are some things you should do? What do you think? Yeah. So you're going to go to them, ask forgiveness. That's right. And so along with that, if you're going to them and going to ask for forgiveness, you're acknowledging that you need forgiven. Absolutely. So those are two very important things. What else would you, would you throw in there? Okay, yeah. You're coming in there and saying, listen, 
I understand the ramifications of what I did, and, and you may never speak to me again. Okay? Absolutely, you're willing to accept. Maybe, the, maybe, maybe you forgive me, but that relationship can never be back to what it was. Or at least it can't be for a time period or whatever. Yeah, you're, you're willing to accept the consequences. What else, if you're going to work to reconcile, what would you throw in there? Make restitution, that's right. If you wrong someone and it caused them financial harm or whatever else, you, you repay it. You make good on that, okay? Absolutely, that's an important part of it. It was a Zacchaeus that did that, right? That's right, he said, I'll pay back four times whatever I took. He wanted to make restitution plus. Anything else you throw in there? Confess what? Yeah, that's right. Confess it. That's right. So express your sorrow for it. All those things are really important, guys. So, but let me, just, let me just use the word here that's important here. Work. Okay? It takes work. It really does. It's not an easy process. All right? In, in a lot of ways, it's easier to just say, I'm just going to act like it didn't happen. It's easier that way in one sense, right? But it doesn't get rid of that guilt. It'll still be there. And you'll still think about from time to time that, that relationship will come up and you'll think about the person and that guilt will weigh you down again. It won't get rid of the guilt. It'll just hide the guilt for a little while. You've got to work toward reconciliation. And that, guys, let me just remind you that that is God's plan in every situation where sin breaks relationships. Okay? is for reconciliation to happen. I mean, that, that's God's ultimate plan. Now, again, we live on a fallen earth and that's not always going to happen. But God's plan is for reconciliation. Yep. That's right. Yeah, there should be a quick. That is the hard thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Finally tonight, and this is something that we, we're just going to camp out on here for just a few minutes for us to really think about. And I'm excited to hear your insight on this. Finally, to handle your guilt, you should battle your subjective guilt by conforming your mind to biblical truth. We've all been there before, right? Where we are forgiven. God said, I forgive you. The person said, I forgive you. But you're still walking around feeling guilty. You've got a battle. You've got a battle. The first thing I would say to you, and, and this goes for you here tonight, who, um, who have the weak conscience. You're feeling guilty, and you didn't even do anything wrong. Or what you're thinking about doing is not wrong, but you feel guilty for it, okay? So this goes for you as well. This goes for the person who did wrong and has been forgiven, but still feels guilty, and the person who did nothing wrong and feels guilty. These three things are for you tonight. The first one is this, this battle. Three R's tonight with the battle here. The number one is, is renew your mind. Renew your mind. That's what you got to do. You've got to think differently, right? Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to think like God thinks. If God says it's sinful, then it's sinful. But if God says it's not sinful, it's not sinful. 
And if God says you're forgiven, then you're forgiven. You've got to think like God thinks. Especially if we have that weak conscience or that mistrained conscience. And maybe you have said this or, or you've heard people say this. Have you ever heard people say or have you ever said, I just can't forgive myself? You heard people say that? Man. You know, what, you know what that means right there? When a person says, yeah, God can forgive me, but I can't forgive me. Here's what they're saying. I am holier than God. And that can't be. If God can forgive you, you can forgive you. All right? We've got to think like God thinks. We've got to renew our minds. If we're going to battle this subjective feeling of guilt. Secondly, though, the second R with this battle here is to remember the war. Remember it, okay? Remember that you are in a war. What are some of the things that the devil says to you that burdened you back with guilt that has already been done away with? What are some of those things? Oh, if you could only change the past. If you could only change the past, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you had just been a better dad if you'd just been a better mom, if you would have just been there, all these things. The devil likes to call you a hypocrite, doesn't he? He likes to point out all your shortcomings. He likes to remind you of the times that you've fallen. And like the serpent in the garden say to you like he said to Eve, did God really forgive you? You've got to remember that you're in a war. The devil wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal... He can't steal your forgiveness, but he wants to steal your feeling of forgiveness. I'm just reminded of that passage of Scripture that we took as our text a few weeks ago. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And listen to this. And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Again, this is so important. This warfare here, we've got to take every thought captive. When the devil rises up and accuses you of something you've already been forgiven for, you've got to lasso it. And pull it out, right? Take it captive. Arrest that joker and throw it out. And finally, if you're going to end this battle here, how do you battle for the subjective feeling of being 
no longer guilty. So the first one was renew your mind. The second one was remember the war. And the final one is to recall your standing. Regardless of our feelings, your feelings will lie to you. Amen? Absolutely they will. So just like there is objective guilt, there is objective forgiveness. And we've got to stand in that. We've got to stand in that. Romans 8, 31 through 34 should be your battle cry. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge or any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Amen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it goes back to Romans 8.1, right? For there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ian Hamilton said this, and I, I thought this was good. He said, our standing in Christ does not rest in anything in us, our feelings or the things that are done by us, our works. So our feelings or our works, that's not where our standing in Christ rests. Instead, it rests on the finished work of our Savior on the cross and his continuing work at God's right hand as our great high priest interceding for us. The Christian's whole Comfort lies outside of us. And he says, perhaps this is nowhere more memorably expressed than in the first quote and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a great catechism. It says this, the question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And here's the answer, that I am not my own belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready now on to live for him. I told you it was good. <laughs> That's good. That is good. So you've got a battle. And one of your greatest weapons, when guilt rises up, is I stand with Jesus. You can't be shaken from that.
Tonight, if there is guilt in your heart and it's not been taken care of, you have yet to confess it to your Savior. You have yet to, return, you, you have yet to turn from it. Tonight is a wonderful opportunity to repent of that sin and ask God to forgive you. But if you are dealing with guilt that's already been dealt with, or if you're dealing with guilt that you should not feel guilty for, in other words, it's false guilt, then you need to get rid of that. Set your mind on the way Christ thinks and what Christ has done. Here's my final prayer tonight. May we rest and rejoice in the guilt-erasing grace of God. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that He sent Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.